This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. <clears throat> when Hashem speaks to Moshe Menu, Hashem says, Va'era el Avram Yaakov Kel Shakai. To Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, I appeared as Kel Shakai, but to you, I'm going to appear differently. Shmi Hashem Lonadati Lehem. The name Hashem, I did not reveal to them. Basically, this is at the snare when Hashem first speaks to Moshe Benu, and Hashem says, I'm going to reveal to you that which the Ovos did not understand, that which they didn't see. They saw me as Kel Shakai. They didn't see me in the name of Hashem. Explains Rashi, what does this mean? Shmi Hashem lo lehem. It doesn't mean I didn't let them know the name. I didn't appear to them in that way. Meaning, the name Hashem means la'emes devarai. Hashem is nemel shalom. Hashem is trustworthy to pay back. They didn't see that. I promised Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov tremendous things, but they never saw me pay them back. I promised them that the children will have a land that's wide and vast. I promised them that the children will leave Mitzrayim. All of that I promised, but I never delivered it. And Moshe Benu, you're going to have an opportunity to see that which they didn't see, that you're going to experience Hashem, the one who's neman, the one who actually fulfills that which he says he will. You're going to experience Hashem in a way that the Ovos didn't. And that's how Rashi explains this Pasuk. Now, if you think about this Rashi, you might find it a bit perplexing. Because let's discuss something called faith. Let's say I want to buy an item from you. And I pull out a checkbook and I write, begin writing my check. Now, if you have faith in me, likely you'll take the check. But naturally, it's going to depend on how expensive is the item, how good is my credit, how well do you know me. Because at the end of the day, a check is but a promise to pay. Now, if you think about it, currency is also but a promise to pay. A $100 bill is a promise backed by the U.S. government, backed by the production of the United States as an entity, but it's really a promise to pay. Now, clearly, the United States government has a lot more credibility than I do, because if I pulled out a suitcase with $10 million, you would be very quick to accept it, whereas if I wrote a check for $10 million, I don't think you'd be so quick to accept it. So it really depends on who writes the check, who's the one who promises to pay that determines how much faith you have in it. Here's the problem. This is God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And Hashem said to Avram Yitzhak Yaakov, I promise you, your children will leave Mitzrayim. Do you think the others questioned Hashem? Hashem says to Moshe, Moshe, you're going to experience Hashem in a way the others didn't. They, they knew that I promised, but I never fulfilled. You're going to experience Hashem in the fulfillment of those words. The problem is the others knew that Hashem was good for His word. They didn't question Hashem on any level. And what does it mean that Moshe Benu is going to experience Hashem to a level that the others couldn't? The others had full faith in everything that Hashem said, had full faith to the extent it was at least as good as the U.S. dollar. And if I pulled out a suitcase of $10 million, you wouldn't question, assuming it wasn't counterfeit, and you wouldn't question the value, you wouldn't question the promise to pay, the others didn't question Hashem. What difference did it make that Moshe Menor got to see the fulfillment of the promise in a sense that he got to see Hashem much greater than did the others? The others knew Hashem was going to fulfill it. What difference does it make the promise or the fulfillment? And to understand the answer to this question, I'd like to focus on a very important mitzvah. We have a commandment 
But the Rambam is very clear. The Rambam says there are really two elements here. Hakel and Nechba Venora said this great, mighty God, Ahavo, it's a mitzvah to love Hashem, Uliyir also, and to have awe of Hashem. There are two distinct mitzvahs. The Ahavita Hashem Lekech means I have to love Hashem. But the Pasuk also says, Esa Hashem Lekecha Tira, you have to have awe of Hashem. Now here's the problem. The Torah tells me how to put on tefillin. Okay, I wrap it around my arm, I put it on my head, I get it. The Torah tells me how to keep kosher. I get that. These foods I eat, these foods I don't eat. The Torah tells me to put mezuzahs on my doorpost. Okay, I nail the mezuzahs to the doorpost. But how do you love Hashem? How do you have an awe of Hashem? Now clearly, it's not instinctual, because you wouldn't need a commandment to do it. And clearly it's something that we're capable of doing because the Torah commands us. But here is the problem. How do I come to love Hashem? How do I come to have awe of Hashem? How does one accomplish that? So let's study the Gemara, because the Gemara explains to us exactly how one comes to this. Explains the Gemara, You should love Hashem, your God. How do you come to this? With your entire heart. What does Bechol Levavcha mean? Vishnei Yitzrecha, with both of your natures. V'yetzatov, v'yetzahara. With the Yetzatov and the Yetzahara. In very simple terms, you're supposed to love Hashem with your Neshama. You're supposed to love Hashem with your Nefesh Abahami. You're supposed to use both natures, both the Seichel and the Neshama, as well as the Nefesh Abahami. You're supposed to use both of these to love Hashem. Now, here's the problem. That Gemara is a nice formula, but it really doesn't help us. Number one, I don't know how I love Hashem with my Seichel. And number two, I surely don't know how I love Hashem with my Nefesh Bahami. The Nefesh Bahami are instincts, drives, appetites. It's the animal part of the human. How do you come to love Hashem with that part? So let's focus on this, because this is a tremendous yesod in our religion. The Gemara Brachas tells us, It is forbidden for a person to have any enjoyment from this world without a bracha. And in fact, that's the halacha. Before we eat, before we drink, we make a bracha. Now let's analyze this for a minute. Number one, this can get rather annoying. Every single time before I eat and before I drink, if somebody's no hefsek, I have to make a bracha every single time. But much more troubling, it doesn't sound very holy. I'll explain to you what I mean. When I was the first year based Medrash in Chavetz Chaim, Rabbi Wiener was the Magid Shir. Rabbi Wiener was dealing with an immature bunch of Chevra, and he was very sharp. After, right after Musa um, Seder, we had Chazar as a Shir, when we'd review Shir and Chaz uh, Shir. Anyway, during Chazar as a Shir, a fellow is out there by the snack machine with a big Danish in his hand, chomping away. Rabbi Wiener looks at him and says, I see you're chazering. You play on the word chazir, chazir, pig. I see you're pigging out. I see you're chazering. Now, even though it was a very sharp line, I'd like to share with you a very fundamental concept. Eating is an animalistic activity. Elsie the cow fresses. Baboons fresh, giraffes fresh, elephants eat. It's not a very lofty, holy activity. And yet we make a bracha on it. 
I remember clearly the Rebetzin used to be very makbid in the later years of the Rishiva's life, the Tzal's life. The Rebetzin used to ask that nobody be there when the Rishiva was eating. Now, the guys in Yeshiva were very biased. We were in the house all the time. The Rebetzin in the later years didn't want, you shouldn't see your, your Rebbe eating. Your Rebbe should be a malachalakim to you. And she had a sunak pada that guys shouldn't be there eating when, when their Shiva was eating. Okay, now, why did she feel that way? Because if you think about it, eating is an animalistic activity. It's about as low an activity as a human being is going to do. It's equivalent to anything in the animal kingdom. Not to say that it's wrong, not to say that it's improper, but it's surely not a holy activity. It's something that every other animal in the animal kingdom does. Now, here's the problem. You're going to use the name of Hashem to do something that's so mundane, so plain. And not just that, Chazal make a major point out of it. We make blessings before we eat, we make blessings after we eat, we make blessings Friday night on wine, we make blessings on challah, yontav, we eat good food, cholin, kishka, hopsas, chicken soup. There's a tremendous emphasis in our religion on food. As a matter of fact, there are people who call it the gastronomical religion. Or certainly there is a real emphasis on food, and you really have to ask yourself, gee golly, why? And I'd like to really address that issue because I believe it's a fundamental concept. And to do that, let me share with you something that the Chabot of Avos teaches us. He says, when it comes to Yiras Hashem, there are two very distinct types of Yiras Hashem. There's Yiras Onish and Yiras Romos. Yiras Onish simply means fear of the punishment. It can mean fear that Hashem is going to punish me in this world, fear that Hashem is going to punish me in the world to come, but it's a very simple contractual relationship. I recognize that Hashem created, maintains, and orchestrates this world. I also recognize that God is mighty and God is watching. So therefore, I don't do this because I know God is going to punish me, whether in this world or the world to come. But the reason I don't do these things is very simple, because I'm no fool. I recognize that Hashem is here. Listen, I'll give you a little piece of advice. Don't get into road rage. Now, you may say, why do I have to say that? Because don't get into road rage. Forget the fact that you're going to create a lot of trouble for yourself. You're going to get caught. Everybody has a camera. Everything is videotaped. You cannot get into a fistfight today without 65 people videotaping it. You can't get into any situation today without being aware that a camera will catch you. Be very guarded. Be very careful with what you do. Now, that's good advice. But that's exactly what the first level is. Yiras Ha'onish means quite simply, I know that God is present. I know that God is watching. I know that every action of my existence is recorded, weighed, measured, and I will be held accountable. Whether I'll be punished in this world or the world to come, every action that I engage in is measured, weighed, and accounted for. And, by the way, included in that is something else. It's not just punishment, but it's also reward. Reward means I know that if I learn, if I dominate, if I give stuck, if I do chesed, Hashem is going to shine His countenance upon me. I'll have it good in this world. I'll have it good in the world to come. And that's also part of Yerasonish. It's a very simple contractual relationship. I hate to say it this way, but it's a little bit like a uh, you put money into the vending machine, you get something back for it. In a sense, that's what Yerasonish is. I recognize that Hashem created, maintains, and runs this world. 
I recognize that Hashem watches. Hashem rewards those people who do good. Hashem punishes those people who do bad. And that's Yiras Ha'onish. However, the Chavos of Ovis explains to us that there's a whole different level of Yira that has nothing to do with Onish. It's called Yiras Aromus. Yiras Aromus means awe of the greatness of Hashem. I recognize that I, little me, stand in front of the creator of the heavens and the earth. This entire cosmos, 13 billion light years of expanse. Hashem said the words Vayihi, and it all came into existence. And in any moment, in every moment, Hashem keeps it in existence. And Hashem is right here. The great, mighty, powerful God is present. And because I recognize that God is present, I'm filled with awe. I'm filled with trepidation. Not that God's going to hit me, and not that I'm going to be punished, but simply that I'm in the presence of majesty. I'm in the presence of my Creator. In this very space is God. I'm filled with a sense of awe of the majesty of the presence of Hashem. That's Yerasaromus. Yerasaonish is quite simply being intelligent, understanding the gravity of my actions, understanding the consequences of my actions, both on the bad as well as on the good. Yerasaromus is something totally different. Nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me at all. It's a fact that Hashem is present. The great, mighty God is here wherever I go. When I put my head down at night, when I open my eyes in the morning, and I get behind the wheel of my car, as I go wherever I am all day, every day, Hashem is present. Two very distinct aspects of Yira. Yira Saonish, fear of the punishment, meaning simply the consequences. Yira Saromos, understanding that Hashem is present, or of the greatness, the majesty of Hashem. However, the Koch explains to us that just like Yira has two elements to it, so too does Ava. There are two very distinct parts of Ava Hashem. And let's listen to the first part. The Rambam tells us, This great God, it's a mitzvah to love Him. How does one come to love Hashem? It explains the Rambam by being misboning b'masav, by contemplating Hashem's works, by looking at nature, by studying this world, and by studying the vastness, the complexities, by studying the animal kingdom, by studying the plant kingdom, by studying all of the incredible features of this world, and when a person does that and sees the vastness and the incredible wisdom, miyad immediately, who he immediately loves Hashem and immediately wants to praise Hashem, and he has a taiva gadol, a tremendous desire to know Hashem. If you study any part of this world, you see the greatness of your Creator. And when you see the greatness of your Creator, you want to be closer. I used to tell my guys, I'm going to the temple, the temple of God. In Rochester, when I was a Rebbe, there was a science museum very nearby. And I would often go. But I would go to see my Creator. And because when you see the exhibits and they're so powerful and they're so real, you're seeing your Creator. I called it the temple of God because it showed exactly that. And the majesty, the awe, the greatness of Hashem. And immediately when you see that, you're filled with a love, you're filled with a tremendous sense of, I want to be close to my creator. And if you'd like to be a religious Jew, I have a little bit of a recommendation. You don't need to travel. You just need to put on the National Geographic movies. And just watch where they take you. To the African Serengeti, to the Arctic under the sea, to space, and you see a world that's so replete with wonder, 
and you see levels after level, layer after layer of incredible wisdom. <clears throat> 10 million species of living things. They can't even count the amount of plants. They can't even imagine the amount of insects. They can't even begin to fathom the complexity of life. And when you see it all up there in color, and by the way, again, if you go, I don't mean to be funny over here, but I was in South Africa, and someone told me I have to go on a safari. And I agreed. Listen, if I'm in South Africa, I have to see Hashem's wonders. So I went on a safari, and they took me deep into the deep, 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 deep in. And you know what I saw? Nothing. Not a single lion. Not a single lion. Why? Because lions aren't on parade, and they don't like to show. But you go to National Geographic, and you don't just see the lion. You see the lion hunting. You see him stalking. You see him pounce. You can see the plaque in his teeth. It's an incredible show. And again, I mean it, if you'd like to grow in Ava Sashem, just study the vastness of this creation, study the wonders, open a science textbook, open a botany textbook, open anything, and you'll see incredible wisdom. However, the Kochveyar explains to us that as there are two parts to Yira Hashem, and there are also two parts to Avas Hashem. You see, studying Hashem in the vast picture is the way one comes to love Hashem. But there's another love of Hashem when I recognize Hashem's involvement in my life. But before we get involved in the second part and the differences between them, let's spend a minute or two focusing on understanding as much as we can the greatness of our Creator. So let's begin with a simple observation. The primary business of life, from a biologist's standpoint, is survival and reproduction. Every animal, every plant, every insect is basically involved in survival and reproduction. But if you study the mechanisms that Hashem created and the complexity, sometimes you get a bit eye of an eye-opening experience. You see, the way that animals reproduce, I get it. Hashem put an insatiable need in the animal to reproduce. Hashem put into Nefesh Bahami a desire to mate, and the animal will go through hoops of fire. A dog will break through plate glass. A dog will dig on the fences. Animals will give up their lives if need be, because there's such a tremendous need, a desire to mate. So I understand how Hashem created the system of reproduction in the animal kingdom. But when you study the plant world, things get a bit more complex because the plants don't have a Nefesh Bahami. They don't have that drive. So how do plants reproduce? So in many higher plants, the offsprings are packaged in a protective seed. As a matter of fact, in flowering plants, a seed is contained inside a fruit. And most flowering plants require a system of pollinization. There's the male part of the, the plant, the female part of the plant, and then there's something needed to mix the two together to cause a reproduction. Now, worldwide, there are approximately a thousand types of plants that are used for food, beverage, fibers, spices, medicines, that all require pollination for them to actually reproduce. But if you want to know the list of things that require pollination, everything from apples to blueberries, chocolate to coffee, melons, peaches, potatoes, pumpkins, vanilla, almonds, the vast amount of the food that we eat require pollinization. Now, how do you pollinate the plant? The plant has a female part, has a male part. Something has to take the male part, the female part, connect them together for the next generation to come about. 
So there's an astonishing array of workers that exist to do that job. There are more than 200,000 individual animal species that's job it is to pollinate the flowers and the plants that we use for food and for much of what goes on on this planet. But you see, these animal species go from large animal to small to insects. And again, there are about 200,000 so far. Within the bees alone, scientists have distinguished 20,000 distinct species. And everything from hummingbirds to butterflies to moths to wasps to ants are involved in this. Now, here's the interesting part. There has to be an exact match between the insect and the flower for it to work. So let me give you, for instance, the honeybee is very famous as a pollinator. And the honeybee has been specially equipped with a desire for nectar. The flowers produce the nectar. The honeybee goes to suck the nectar. When he sucks the nectar, he can't help but rub the pollen. On his leg is a pollen basket. Some of the pollen falls into the pollen basket. When that bee then flies to the next flower, some of that pollen is dispersed and put into the next flower. Hence, the bee inadvertently, unintentionally, pollinates from flower to flower, takes the pollen and brings it from one flower to the next, and he causes the reproduction of the flowers. But you see, this is the complexity. There has to be something in it for the bee and something in it for the flower. Now, what the bee gets is nectar. Nectar is that sweet, sustaining liquid that's inside the flower. And what the bee gets is the nectar, and what the flower gets is the pollination. Now, it's an astonishing complexity because both have to match perfectly. And when you begin studying that there are 200,000 types of animals or insects that pollinate, and each one has different hungers, appetites, and desires, have different foods, have different ways of pollination, and you recognize that every flower or tree has to have a matching receptor site that attracts the pollinator, rewards it, and the system to actually get it to carry away the pollen. So very simply, apples, when an animal eats the apple, he swallows the seeds. When he later disgorges it, when he excretes it, the seeds are brought wherever they are, so that's rather simple. But let's function, let's watch something a little bit more complex. Many, many, many flowers are pollinated by bats. Now, as you know, bats are often blind, and certainly many types of bats only function at night. Now, how you pollinate during the day, I guess, you know, even though the honeybee happens to be colorblind, The smell of the flower is very potent, and the bee searches it out, smells the flower, and then goes to the nectar, pollinates, etc. But how do you attract a bat? And specifically, how do you attract a bat at night? Now, if you know the way bats work, there's a concept that we're familiar with called echolocation. Basically, when I look at an image, what's happening is there a certain light that comes into my brain, My brain then translates it. It's created from my optic nerve. The optic nerve brings the electro message. And then my brain creates an image out of the light that I sense. So the light comes into my eye. The rods and cones receive it, 
translate into electrical signals, send it along the optic nerve, and then along the optic nerve, it's sent to the optic center of the brain. The optic center of the brain then processes it, and in my brain creates an image. So I don't really see a tree. I see the light hits my eye. The eye then translates it to cones and rods, accepted, translated into electrical signals. It's sent along the optic nerve, and then my brain creates an image of a tree. Now, if you cut open my brain, you won't see a tree. But the brain is very, very creative and is able to create something that to my mind's eye looks like a tree. I recognize it as a tree, and I see it as a tree. But again, in reality, I don't see a tree. The light comes in, and my brain creates the image. Now, if you'd like to understand why that's important to understand, because let's focus on how echolocation works. So if you have a bottleneck dolphin, bottleneck dolphin is able to find things under the sand. How? He sends out clicking noises, and the clicking noises come back to him, and he hears the clicking echo. And then based on the sound, and based on the speed, he's able to then interpret and then in his brain create an image of what is under the sand. A bottleneck dolphin can go around and eat starfish all day long. He stops, sends out the echolocation, not here, not here, oh, right there, boom, digs into the sand, pulls out the starfish. One after another can go and find it. The starfish is buried under the sand. It can't be seen. But he sends out the echolocation, sends out the clicks, and the clicks reverberate back. He hears them, and in his brain, instead of creating a a visual image, creates an image out of the audio sounds and creates an image similar to what I guess we would see. We've never been inside the brain, but clearly he's able to recognize it. But if you'd like to know how accurate it is, I'll share with you something very, very telling. One of the things that a killer whale eats is salmon. Now, really, what a killer whale eats is everything that it could possibly eat. But here's the problem. Many of the things in the sea do not have much caloric value to it. So let's take, for instance, a jellyfish. A jellyfish can be eight feet wide, but it's basically made up of mostly very little substance. And if a killer whale would eat jellyfish all day long, he would starve to death because there's very little caloric value. However, salmon are very, very caloric, very dense. But how does a killer whale determine whether it's worthy to eat this fish or not? Really, it's a very interesting system. And what the killer whale looks for is the size of the swim bladder. Almost every fish, certainly ones that go up and go down, have inside them a swim bladder. A swim bladder is a bladder inside that they fill with air for buoyancy. So if a fish wants to go up, it'll fill the bladder and it becomes more buoyant. If it wants to sink down, it releases the air in that bladder. So now it becomes far more dense and it sinks down. But you see the size of the swim bladder has to be exactly fit for the mass of the body. So if you have a jellyfish, it requires very little of a swim bladder because there's very little mass. Salmon is a very dense fish Hence, it requires a much larger swim bladder. What the killer whale does is he sends out an echolocation, and when he finds a large swim bladder, whoom, he heads right for it because he knows that that's a dense fish, and that's a type of fish that's nutritious, and one after another, he'll nail them. Now, that's very impressive for a large whale. 
But what do you? What about a bat? What about the bat that's the size of a thumb? What if I share with you that almost all pollination of many species are done by the bat in night? At night, it's total darkness. Now, how do they navigate, I guess, the echolocation, but how do they find the, the pollination? How do they find the flower? So interestingly enough, in Central America, there are many flowers and many plants that create a beacon-shaped flower. Basically, at night, and they open up, their flowers open up to be literally like a sound beacon. And what happens is it reflects back the bat sound perfectly. But you see, it's only that particular plant that's the perfect match for that bat and that will produce that type of beacon that will reflect back the sound. Don't forget, there are thousands of types of bats and there are thousands of types of flowers. Those flowers that meet the particular bat will create the beacon so that the bat will send out its echolocation. It'll hear back the sound that rings in its ears as true and proper, and it heads right for that flower and pollinates that flower perfectly. And when you begin studying the vastness, the complexity of this world, and you begin seeing the incredible features, and you see how much complexity that exists for this world to just continue, you begin to say the words, this is astonishing. And again, if a Jew wants to see the wonder of his creator, if you want to come to love Hashem, all you have to do is study any part of this creation, study any part of the plant world of the animal world, and study this world, and you'll see the wonder of Hashem. But here's an interesting part. You could do that, and you could be an atheist. Or even if you did that, and are a mamin, Here's a simple observation. You could study National Geographic all day long. You could read every botany book in the library. You could read every single digest about nature in the world, and you're still going to sin. Because you know why? Because it's wonderful. It's amazing. Hashem is really great, but that doesn't move me. And would you like to know how you can be really moved? You see, again, the Kochayar explains there are two types of Yeras Hashem and two types of Avas Hashem. <clears throat> One is very great but weak. The other is very small but powerful. You see, when it comes to Yira, if I go to the Grand Canyon and I see the majesty of my Creator, it's wow, it's amazing. But if I know that Hashem is watching me and I'm going to be punished, it's a much weaker but much more powerful Yira. Why? Because it affects me in a much more real way. You see, knowing that Hashem created the entire cosmos, knowing that Hashem did everything in existence is a very powerful, very moving force, but it's not going to affect me. You know what's going to affect me a lot more? If I burn my finger, if I get a slight tap on the shoulder, that's going to affect me a lot more. And I believe that's exactly the answer to this Rashi. You see, as great as the others were, this was theory. What Hashem said to the Avos was, I promise you, your children will be redeemed. And believe me, the Avos believed it. But it wasn't real. It wasn't tangible. It wasn't something they can touch. And just like there are two types of Yira, there's a great Yira of knowing that Hashem is the creator of everything. And knowing that awe. And that's mighty, that's wonderful. But it's not really going to move me. Why? Because it doesn't really touch me. It doesn't really affect me. Knowing that Hashem is going to punish me, knowing that Hashem is going to reward me, is a lot more powerful on a day-to-day basis. You need both. You need to know how great Hashem is, 
you know, you need that to have that yira, but you also have to know that there's real punishment, real reward, because that's a lot more real. It's a lot more close to the home. And it's exactly the same thing by Ava. And it's wonderful to study the greatness of our Creator. And that's powerful. But if you really, really want to grow in Ava Hashem, just appreciate what Hashem does for you. Appreciate the fact that I have apples and pears and bananas. And you know why Chazal say I have to make a brach every time? Because I need to appreciate it. And when I eat, and my nefesh Bahami consumes it, and I feel the taste, and I enjoy it, I say, wow, Hashem really loves me. Of course Hashem loves me. No, you see, up until now, it was theoretical. It was in the world. It was Hashem was great. But here, I'm feeling it. And my nefesh Bahami is feeling it. I'm feeling it in a very real sense. It's not lofty. It's not theoretical. It's not up there. It's not in my seichel. It's in my nefesh Bahami. That's exactly what this Chazal is telling us. You have to use both yetzers. You have to use your seichel. You have to use your intellect. You have to study the vastness of Hashem's great world. But you also have to use your nefesh Bahami. You have to eat an apple, eat a chip pear, and say this is delicious, and enjoy it, and recognize that Hashem wants me to enjoy it. Hashem wants me to enjoy my stay on this planet. It's not the reason why Hashem created us. <clears throat> Hashem wants me to enjoy it. And every single time I eat, I make a bracha. Why? Because I'm being makadish that. I'm taking that mundane, simple thing, and I'm elevating it. I'm taking my nefesh Bahami and I'm training myself to recognize God loves me. God is giving to me. God wants me to appreciate these things. I say, Baruch Hashem, so I can recognize it because I have to use both forces. There's a very broad, great force seeing the greatness of Hashem, but there's a much more potent, much more powerful force when I feel it, when I sense it. And I believe that's exactly what Hashem was saying to Moshe Rabbeinu. As much as the others believed, it was in theory. It was lofty. It was a way. It was a promise. Believe me, the others trusted. And then Hashem said to Moshe Manu, you're going to see it. You're going to see it with your own eyes. You're going to experience it. And that's much more palpable. That's much more real. It may not sound as lofty. It may not sound as holy. But it's a lot more real. A lot more potent. And that's, I believe, what Hashem said to Moshe Manu. And I believe that's exactly how a person comes to Yerush Hashem and a person comes to Amish Hashem. You have to use both systems. You have to study the world, study the vastness, study the complexity, and say, oh my goodness, if this is the creation, what does it tell me about the Creator? If this is the house, what does it tell me about the one who made it? Now that's great, but it's very removed. It's a very, very far distant concept. If you want to come to real Yerush Hashem, you also have to recognize that everything that I do is weighed, measured, and there are consequences on the good and the bad. Everything that I do, Hashem is going to richly reward me for or hold me accountable. Both systems have to be used. They're both Yetzers, both with my Seichel as well as my Nefesh Bahami, understanding the vastness of Hashem's world and seeing the complexity and seeing its wondrous brings me to love of Hashem. But I also have to use the internal system, the Nefesh Bahami. I have to eat and make brachas. I have to go through all the busyness of being a human being because when I use both systems, that's how I come to Avas Hashem, both my Seichel as well as my Nefesh Bahami, both Yetzers, and both together allow me to reach that level. And with that, I'd like to share with you two observations. I have a piece of advice for marriage. As you know, the book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, um, has become Baruch Hashem very popular. And in the past 15 
20 years, I spent a lot of time dealing with couples, hundreds and hundreds, really truth between seminars and things, thousands of couples I've dealt with. I'd like to share with you one of the most important pieces of advice that I can give you. If you would like to be happy, keep the courtship going. It's really very simple. The vast majority of problems that I see in marriage is because they stopped courting. They stopped going out. They stopped the love notes and the cards and the gifts and all the things that a couple in love are supposed to do. And really the solution to so many problems in marriage is exactly that. Keep the courtship going. Now, my friends, that is not very complex. That is not very lofty. You don't need 75,000 Shalom Bayashurim books to tell you that. But I'm telling you something. It's a mighty powerful yesod. Why? Because when you keep the courtship going, you're using your Yetzahara to keep your marriage alive. And included in that is a physical relation. And included in that is physical intimacy. Physical intimacy is a powerful bonding force. You read the book, I spent a lot of time explaining exactly how it functions, but it creates a bond between husband and wife. And if women understood the bond that it created, if men understood it, they'd engage in a lot more a lot more understanding. But you see, you're supposed to use both Yatesers. You're supposed to appreciate who your wife is. You're supposed to appreciate what your husband does for you. You're supposed to recognize the great... But that's all lofty. If you're going to use romantic love, if you're going to use physical intimacy, if you're going to use touch, you're going to be a lot quicker to bond to cement, but both systems have to be used. And I believe that's exactly the episode. So many problems in a marriage can be avoided if you keep the romance going. It's a husband's job to romance his wife, but the responsibility is on both to make sure that the love in the marriage remains. And when there's love in the marriage, it's easy to stay happy. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of complexity and a lot of things, but 80% of Sean Bayes problems are solved if if that courtship is going. And while that's advice in a general sense of marriage, I'd like to give you advice for being a Jew. If you'd like to be a happy Jew, if you'd like to be an Ebed Hashem, keep Ashkacha Prati's diary. Keep a record of all those things that you say, oh my goodness, it's Hashem. This happened and that happened, this one said that, and, this, and, and look where I am. Look where I am today. I have a line that I think is very important to note. Every Jew has a story. Every Jew has a story how you ended up here. Someone said this, this happened, this happened. And the single most important book that you could read is your autobiography. But you see, autobiography means the book you write about yourself. Write your book. How you ended up where you are. How you ended up meeting this person, ended up here in this. And every Jew has a story. But you see, when you write this stuff down, you begin to realize, oh my goodness, it's real. Of course Hashem is good. Of course Hashem is the native. But that's in the global sense. We're talking my life. We're talking me. Hashem is constantly there for me, helping me, aiding me, abetting how could I not love Hashem? How can I not have a sense of appreciation? You see, when you sing Shir V'Shevach Hashem, when you sing Nishmas, it's beautiful. You sing about the greatness of our Creator. But when you write down and then read the events of your life, how Hashem saved you and helped you, it's a lot more real. You need both, but at the end of the day, this is a lot more powerful. I think this Rashi shares with us a tremendous concept. What Hashem was saying to Moshe Rabbeinu is, yes, the others believed me. They had faith. 
You're going to see it. Seeing is much more powerful. It's not in theory. It's not something that's out there. It's right in front of your eyes. You're going to experience Hashem as the others couldn't because you're going to see the fulfillment of the promises. Even though they trusted me, they didn't feel it. They weren't margishit. You're going to feel it. You're going to be margishit. And I believe that's exactly what the Chavaz of Ovos explained to us, that there are two types of Yura. There's a theoretical big picture Yura, awesomeness of Hashem. Studying the vastness of the world, studying the complexity. I understand the grandeur, the majesty. Wow, Hashem is present. That's incredible. And knowing that Hashem is right here, that's that's amazing. But knowing that Hashem is going to reward me or punish me is a lot closer to home. Why? Because it's me, it's real. And when I trip and I realize, uh uh-oh, maybe I did the wrong thing. Or when things turn out really well and I realize, oh, Hashem is there taking care of me. It's a lot more potent. And as Yira has two parts to it, the global Yiras Romus and Yiras Onish, so too does Ava. The first part of Ava is the global, studying the creation, studying the wonders of this world, and reading about our Creator, and it brings you to a sense of majesty. But in a lot more effective manner is to see Hashem's involvement in my life. Every time I eat food, I'm supposed to recognize it. Every time an event happens and I say, that's Ashkach, I'm supposed to write it down, and then it becomes real. I have both the large picture as well as the small picture. I use it in my marriage. I use it in my existence. I use it in my relationship to Hashem, both the large and the small. Both come together using both the Seichel as well as Nefesh Bahami. And together I come to Yiras Hashem, Avas Hashem, and I come to be a proper Evid Hashem. And now I'd like to open the floor to questions, thoughts, observations. Um, they could be on this topic or on any other topic. Please feel free to raise your hand if you have questions. Okay, please feel free. You can either raise your hand or you can write in the question. It could be on this topic or any other topic. I also want to mention, if you have not gotten the 10 really dumb mistakes that very small couples make, you can get a copy at Amazon, you can get a copy at your local service store, or you can get a copy at theschmooze.com. If you get a copy at schmooze.com, you also get the audiobook, ebook, as well as the Marriage Transformation Bootcamp. I'd also like to mention that the Derech Hashem Shir has now been completed. We, there were 20 sessions, and I'm now stopping uh, that for now. Wednesday night, Mitzvah Hashem, after Pesach, is going to be the uh, we're going to, for a while now, we're going to have a, a series on ANOVA, humility and uh, humility and arrogance, creating a proper balanced sense of self. Uh, that series will probably last six to eight weeks. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, but for the next six to eight weeks after Pesach, we'll be doing that. Uh, that's Wednesday night. And the again, Thursday night, we'll be continuing the, the shows live. Um, okay. Um, that's, there's a question asked over here. Um, I, I, I just asked you to answer that question privately. Someone asked a question about um, about uh, marital relations. Just send me an email, please, to Rebbe at com. It's a very solvable problem. Very, very solvable. Send me, an, a, uh, send me please, an email to Rebbe, R-E-B-B-E, at com, and I'll answer you. I'd rather answer that privately than publicly. Uh <clears throat> But again, it's very, very, uh, very doable, very solvable. Avram Scheimer, you have the floor. Questions, please. Good evening, Rebbe. 
Good evening. Hi. Um, so two interesting questions. One is that uh, I mean, we know that Meshavim is being as Rabbi said is being told you're going to be witnessing the the actions of that of that name of Hashem, but at the same time, in the same way the Alves didn't see um, the end result, but Meshavim and Klaus are not seeing the beginning. They didn't see Hashem's promise to them. It's not like a semi small uh, scenario where you know something happened one day and then two days later they're finished and then you can say, oh, look, Hashem did this and that. We're talking about a few hundred years. The class didn't see Hashem's promise. Right. But Hashem did see the Yetzu Berkush Gadol. They're going to leave with vast treasure houses of Mitzrayim. He saw the Jewish nation leave. He saw Adam Sadeh, Kinim Arv. He saw Kriya He saw the redemption. In other words, when you're seeing the redemption, you're seeing the salvation. That's That's the moving part. Hearing the part originally that Hashem promises isn't the, it's seeing the fulfillment of it. That's seeing Hashem, you know, take care of His people. That's the the moving part. That uh, how do you really, see that? Uh, how do you I'm see sorry? that's a fulfillment? How do you know that's a fulfillment of Hashem's original promise? Maybe it's a it's a new it's a new thing. I don't know. It's pretty cool. God split the sea. That's mighty impressive. We were slaves and God took us out. That's pretty cool. I was a poor man, a slave, and I got boatloads of money and diamonds. I don't care what God promised or not. God's good. I love him. It's very easy when life is good, when you're rich and you're healthy and everything is going your way, it's very easy to love Hashem. It's very easy. And the hard part is when you're enslaved and you're sick and you can't pay your bills then it's a lot harder to see Hashem's love. It's very easy to love Hashem when you have an Amazon business that's making you a million dollars a year. Hashem, I love you. Thank you. But when you're barely able to pay your bills and your mortgage every month is a, a trepidation, it's a lot harder to see Hashem's love. And what Moshe Meno saw was the deliverance, the redemption. Okay, did he, hear, he didn't hear the promise. It didn't matter. He saw the deliverance. He saw the redemption. It's very easy to love Hashem when you see Hashem saving you. Okay. All right. Okay. Back to you. Okay. Please feel free. If you have any questions, please feel free. You can type them in, uh, or you can raise your hand, and I'll gladly take them. Uh, in fact, I much prefer people to raise their hand uh, because that way I don't have to scream so much. I could actually listen quietly and hear the questions and having to read it also. Uh, and please feel free to ask questions if you want. If you don't want, you don't have to. Uh, and again, if it's a personal question, please send me email to Rebbe at schmooze.com. Uh, again, if you'd like to join the Schmooze WhatsApp Chizik group, every three, four times a week, we send out these short inspirational videos, usually two, three minutes long. Uh, in addition to which, we send the replay of the Schmooze Live and the Hashem. <clears throat> if you'd like to join the Schmooze Chizik WhatsApp group and get all this to your phone, just go to schmooze.com and you'll see a banner. You click on the banner and you'll sign up. And also, if you'd like to get a copy of the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes, that very small couples make, you can go to schmooze.com and you can get it there along with the audiobook, ebook, and the marriage transformation boot camp. Okay, and there will be uh, no schmooze live next week as well as no Derek Hashem Shir. And it will start again after Pesach. Uh, okay, if the couple between health and money and time can't go on big dates, but small ones, is that also good? The answer is yes. Small is better than none, but a date does not have to be expensive. A date is a time that you and your spouse leave the house and go out. It could be a walk. You spend a couple of hours, especially now it's springtime. 
<clears throat> well, I don't know. It's not spring yet. Okay, but it's coming spring. When spring actually arrives, you can spend three hours. It can be a day date. You don't have to go to a fancy restaurant. You go to a park. You can take a picnic lunch. You can do it. You, you don't have to spend money. You have to spend time. You have to do things together. You have to communicate. You have to be together with your spouse. Um, shorter dates are better than no dates. But again, I like uh, my my shear is two three hours. That's the number I like to see. If you can't do two three hours, it'll take shorter. Fine. But do something. You, you got to do something. All right. <clears throat> Thank you very much for joining. I wish you a good Shabbos and a good Yontif. We'll see you in Hashem after Pesach. Echad Kosher V'Sameach. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.